Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we talk about famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Svars, here with my apprentice, young Jonathan. Ah, oh, thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate the introduction. <laughs> Has it started to spread around the office more? Oh, just with Ken. Thank you, Ken. Perfect. Ken, please continue doing the good deeds and spreading the gospel of young Jonathan. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is our first episode of February, which also then marks our first episode um, of Black History Month. And so we thought it apt to choose a Black author to celebrate. And so we'll be talking about Gwendolyn Brooks this week, the poet oh. extraordinaire. Um, before we get started into that, though, a couple quick announcements. Um I just got back yesterday from New York City, which was such an amazing trip. I got to do so many different literary things. Um, we posted some pictures on the Instagram and Twitter about um, some of the things that I got to see, including uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Cottage, which was amazing. Oh. He lived up in the Bronx for the last couple of years of his life before he died, and he wrote Annabelle Lee. So I thought it only made sense for me to recite Annabelle Lee, which I have memorized. <laughs> Thanks um, to your students. Thanks to my students on the property, which was really cool. And I got to see Edna St. Vincent Millay's house uh, and Washington Irving's house. That was really cool. That nice. was unexpected. I randomly stumbled on that, on uh, Washington Irving's house. That's awesome. So that was neat. And I also got a chance to see um, Herman Melville's grave, which was really cool. Welcome back, so, Stephanie. I'm glad you. you had a good and literary time. It was really fun. And I got out pretty unscathed from the bookstore. And I'm just pretty proud of myself for that. <laughs> unscathed is relative. Right. For me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, our last, uh, I guess, kind of bit of news is our Get Lit Live show, which is coming up this weekend. Um, we are really excited about this. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a really fun Valentine's Day themed episode. Um, we have lots of activities in the works. There's a craft involved there for is. anyone interested. Popsicle sticks are involved. And included. And included. <laughs> um, so we're really looking forward to some of the games that we're going to play and uh, obviously delving a little bit deeper into the Bronte sisters world. So again, feel free to let us know if you'd like to join us. We're happy to send out the information about um, the specific time and location then, but we would love to see you there yeah this sunday be there be square <laughs> or just have a good valentine's day that too in prep so um great well i think that's all the updates that i have um for now do you have any no you got them excellent then let's um actually head somewhere quite local we'll spend most of this episode in chicago illinois nice gwendolyn elizabeth brooks was born on June 7, 1917, in Topeka, Kansas. Um, that makes her two things. One, a Midwesterner, which adds yes. her to our amazing queue of Midwestern authors, and a Gemini, which I believe she might be the first Gemini author that we've covered. I will need to consult the records, but um, I thought that was kind of cool. She's Do we very have unique. tallies on this? Um, no. But I could make them. I have quite an extensive GitLit data sheet. Yes. <laughs> so maybe I'll just make a new column for uh, star signs, too. Okay. <clears throat> that can be my uh, procrastinating grading project. <laughs> <laughs> um, she is the eldest child of Kiza Wims. 
that's her maiden name, Brooks, who was a school teacher and classical pianist, which is cool. Wow. And David Anderson Brooks, who was a janitor. Um, unfortunately, he did not have the funds to finish his schooling. He mm. hoped to be a doctor, but wasn't able to finish. Mm. Um, so as a result, uh, didn't really end up in the exact place that he anticipated he might. But both parents were very supportive of... Gwendolyn's upbringing and her interest in books when she was six weeks old so very much you know she was only in Topeka for six weeks uh they moved to Chicago as part of the great migration Hmm. um she was known as Gwendy growing up during her childhood which I thought was kind of cute it's a great nickname um Unfortunately, though, her experiences growing up were pretty mixed. A lot of the times, especially with some of the other authors of color that we've covered, um, it was sort of a rejection from the white structure that a lot of our authors lived in, that they faced adversity and struggles and hardship. Um, But kind of based on some of the accounts that Gwendolyn, we have of her life, she actually didn't really feel like she fit in with people of her own race or with a white race either um, because she didn't have the athletic abilities that lots of her peers Mm. had and then eventually negatively stereotyped to having. Um, She also had very dark skin and didn't have the greatest of hair, according to these records. Um, So she didn't really feel like she fit in anywhere. She got made fun of when she was a kid. And as a result of this, uh, I guess, isolation, social isolation, she turned to reading and writing Hmm. to sort of make up um, for the lack of support she got elsewhere. What a productive way to cope with something so sad. I know. I, I, I was sort of surprised to read that. Um, that sort of her quest for an identity wasn't really just because of, you know, one element, but rather this lack of fitting in anywhere, which I think in a lot of ways, a lot of people can relate to in the sense that we are born into communities that maybe we don't fit in. We're born into bodies that don't feel like are our own. Um, And kind of growing up and discovering that autonomy and your own voice can be incredibly affirming and empowering. And I think she very much did that. Um, So she actually really starts to get published early, too. She not only starts writing early, but she gets her first poem published in a children's magazine when she's 13 years old. Good for her. So very much like Edna St. Vincent Millay got published early. And then she attends a variety of high schools, including Hyde Park High School, which was integrated. Um, Wendell Phillips Academy High School, which is an all-black high school, and uh, Englewood High School. I'm not, it's not totally clear to me, based on the research that I did, why she went to so many different places. I'm assuming it was a family-moving situation, but um, nevertheless, throughout the course of her high school career, she published 75 poems by the time she was 16. That's casual. Right. I don't. (laughs) A full time high school student who's also publishing 75 75. poems. I don't know that I did anything 75 times by the time I was 16. No. Like, I didn't even have that many driving hours. No. For sure. Yeah. Maybe. You needed 50 to get your license. Right. So she was just owning it in in the literary field. Good for her. Um, Her upbringing very much influenced a lot of the poetry that she was writing and that kind of thing. She got published quite frequently in the Chicago Defender, which was an African-American newspaper published in Chicago. Um, And she experimented with a lot of formal uh, poetic forms, including ballads and sonnets. 
um, and really took her subject matter from the area that she lived in. So a lot of her poetry is reminiscent and discusses Chicago, and the landscape is very much that of our city. Um, John and I both live around the city of Chicago, um, so a lot of the work that I was reading of hers were places that I recognized and things that I'd heard of, which was cool. That's neat. Um, In 1936, she graduates from Wilson Junior College, and she starts working as a secretary to support herself. She's still publishing and and developing her work and her voice, um, but she needs money. So that's the only thing I think that Gwendolyn Brooks and I have in common is that we both worked as secretaries to support our actual (laughs) passions. (laughs) That's... A long story. Right? Yes. Yeah. So um, prior to entering the education field, I had a short stint as a secretary at a structural engineering firm. So for those of you who are friends of John's or listen to this podcast from John's side of things, I do have some experience in the engineering (laughs) world. (laughs) I'm really glad to be in education. Yes, you are. (laughs) I I would be too. (laughs) Um, It's never too late. Uh, Okay, so Brooks um, takes part in a series of poetry workshops and continues to read her poetry in addition to getting it published. And another sort of interesting historical fact that I didn't know much about prior to this was that there was a woman in the Chicagoland area named Inez Cunningham Stark. And she was a really wealthy white woman with a literary background, but she hosts... um, these poetry workshops primarily on the south side of Chicago as a space for African-American poets to work and develop her their voices as, as poets, as artists, etc. So that was really cool. I would love to do some more research into her history and kind of find out how her projects got started. But, um, and who else was involved? I mean, it sounds like it's not just uh, Gwendy here. Yeah, there were other poets and that kind of thing. Uh, at one point, Langston Hughes attended one of these That's and cool. gave Gwendolyn Brooks some feedback on her poetry. So that was kind of a neat um, crossover there. At After this and kind of around this time as she's just graduated, she works as a director for publicity um, for the youth uh, I guess, like, sector of the NAACP, which is National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, kind of evolving out of the striving of Black people to get equal rights. <laughs> and sure. so she worked to do publicity for their youth organization, which is neat. Um, in 1939, she marries Henry Lowington Blakely Jr., who is also a writer, and they actually meet through the NAACP. And they have two children together, Henry, named obviously after his father, so he is the third. (laughs) And uh, they have a daughter, Nora, as well. Um, In 1943, she really starts to get recognized. The Midwesters Writers Conference give her an award. And then shortly thereafter, in 1945, she publishes her first book of poetry, which is called A Street in Bronzeville. This is an iconic work that she quickly becomes known for, but also becomes very, very successful. She gets a Guggenheim Fellowship out of publishing this work, which is really amazing. And this is a cool connection. Paul Engel our guy from the Iowa Writers Workshop in Iowa City uh, did a review in the Chicago Tribune of her book. And she would later characterize it as glowing. So that was kind of a cool thing that I didn't know. Nice. Um, But Paul Engel reviewed her work. In 
1949, she publishes a second book called Annie Allen. And this is the book that wins her the Pulitzer Prize. And she wins this and is the first African-American to ever win the Pulitzer, which I thought was really cool. So not only is she a woman writing poetry and, and creating this work, but she's also the first black woman to do so. In 1953, she publishes her first and only narrative book. All of her other work is really um, poetic and fragmented in nature. And it's a novella called Maud Martha. And this book covers 34 different vignettes that follow a black woman throughout her life um, from adulthood or from childhood to adulthood. And so this uh, also gives her a lot of acclaim and starts to expand her range as an artist. In the early 1960s, she also starts to teach. So she's a poet, she's a writer, she's a teacher. Um, She's working at Columbia College in Chicago. That's busy. Yeah, yeah. Let me me list just a few of the (laughs) universities she taught at, including Columbia College Chicago, Chicago State University, Northeastern Illinois University, Columbia University, the University of Wisconsin, and Elmhurst College. You know... (laughs) Just some casual a few, a few yeah, teaching gigs. She also, in the 1960s, publishes uh, her third book of poetry called The Bean Eaters. And this one contains the poem We Real Cool, which lots of high schools teach. Lots of people uh, teach this poem and are familiar with it. It's an exploration of youth and rebellion. And in, in an interview that I found, she said that her inspiration to write that poem was when she stumbled on a a group of boys in her neighborhood and was wondering how they felt about themselves. So she actually wrote this poem from their perspective. That's neat. Which I thought was really cool. I wonder if she ever read it to them. It was real cool. Or if they ever saw it. it. Oh, yes. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I couldn't resist. (laughs) Um, So the Bean Eaters, I think, is, is famous for that reason, among other things, among it standing on its own as well. But I think most people know it from We Real Cool. In 1967, she is established and um, is respected among the poetry community, but she attends a conference at Fisk University. And this is where she credits the reawakening of her Black identity and the shift in her tone of poetry. Mm. So she really kind of changes to this more simple writing style uh, so that her themes could be clear and more apparent. Again, I mentioned that a lot of her early work was very heavily um, formal, reliant on form, literally yeah. form, sonnet, and that kind of thing. And so after this point, she shifts and gets to a lot more free verse and that kind of thing. But she calls that an awakening of her black identity. And the themes that she writes on as well. And so she publishes in the Mecca in 1968, and this gets nominated for the National Book Award in Poetry. And after that, she starts to write an autobiographical, I'm going to call it a collage or a compilation called Report from Part One. And it includes um, interviews and photographs and vignettes and all different kinds of things. And it comes out in 1972, but really sort of explores her identity and what she is discovering in her life. The second one, Report from Part Two, was published in 1995. 
So a little more than 20 years down the line. Wow. Um, in 1985, she's named the Poetry Consultant for the Library of Congress, which is pretty cool. I didn't know that that position yeah. existed. What is that? I knew that there was like the Poet Laureate. Yeah. And she will later become the Poet Laureate of Illinois. So that's neat. Nice. But I didn't know that a poetry consultant to the Library of Congress was a thing. But upon further research, they uh, help the Library of Congress decide what should be cat- cataloged. Huh, that's a big poetry, responsibility. Right? Um, she dies of cancer on December 3rd in 2000 at the age of 83 in Chicago, Illinois. She is a resident of the south side of Chicago until her death. So she really is Chicago all the way through. And she's buried in Lincoln Cemetery in Blue Island, which is a south suburb of Chicago, for those of you outside of the Midwest um, area. And you can go visit her grave there today. So I think that this is a remarkable way and, a, and an exciting way to start out Black History Month just because of what an amazing author Gwendolyn Brooks was and how many things she did um, for not only the black community of Chicago, but I think black female writers as well, and kind of the opportunity to explore an identity in a quote unquote valid way through literature and work and poetry. So knowing that she's also then associated with Langston Hughes and among other poets and things like that as the well. NAACP. Right. And, she's a very yeah. important figure and her work, I think, explores the the suffering and the need for us to have exposure to voices outside of our own to really understand what the experiences of people are like. And I want to thank you for choosing her because mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know anything about her before today. And I- she holds a really incredibly important place, I think, in American history, not only um, as, a, as a poet, but also as a mentor for other poets as well. So I hope that this, again, maybe gets you excited to go out and read some Gwendolyn Brooks Brooks poetry um, and discover a little bit more about her life. For sure. She has a feature, I believe, in the American Writers Museum, downtown Chicago, which we've talked a little bit about before. But if you haven't had a chance to go and you're in the Chicagoland area, we would highly, highly recommend. It's really a fabulous museum. Um, And there are some tributes to her throughout as well. So we'd recommend going to see those, too. Before I got here today, Stephanie was listening to Gwendolyn read her own poetry. Mm-hmm. And I think that that would be quite an experience to listen to. I don't know if you can link that in the social medias. Uh, sure. Yeah, I can find um, there are a few different clips of her reading from her poetry. And um, she really has this lovely, resonant voice mm. um, with a lot of power in it. And uh, I think it's it's definitely one thing to read a poet's work it's another thing to hear a poet's work right uh, i think poetry is meant to be performed just like plays are you get one thing from reading it but it's another thing to hear it read out loud and hear the rhythms that the author intended so i would definitely recommend it but i can find a way um to post either on our website or social media or something some links to her work so feel free to take a look and listen to those well uh we hope to see some of you turn out um for get lit live this coming weekend uh and look forward to continuing celebrating the legacies of these different authors but in the meantime thank you as always for keeping it lit There's one.